You don't notice that you're a creative thinker until you're working with someone who's not necessarily a creative thinker. There's a fly in my soup, the podcast for all people who crave creativity. Brought to you by Hot Soup Video Kitchen, building your brand with really cool videos and all that other marketing stuff. We create content your customers crave. And now, here's your host, Sean Wilson. Enjoy the show. Lightness, darkness, and the ever-changing shades of gray that fall in between. Where do you see beauty? And what does life look like through the eyes of an artist? Amy Putney Koenig, welcome. Thank you. It's amazing to be here. Well, it's amazing that you've, uh, it's cool that you said uh, you like your little road trips to small town Iowa. I love little road trips to small town Iowa and this, what a perfect little square. I love the little water tower and it's springtime, so stuff is growing and it's good. How would you like to talk art and creativity? Um, I'm open to art and creativity. Like, I feel like I live a creative life. Like, I remember being a kid walking home from school back in the day when I would walk two miles to and from school and love it and sing songs and make up stories. And I would repeatedly sing this song about everything I do will be creative. Mm -hmm. And, and I didn't think much of it until, you know, 30 years later. And it's like, Oh, that was one of those things that kind of worked. You know, oftentimes we make decisions as kids based on whatever's going on around us. And we forget we make those decisions, but we live by them. And having to undo some of those decisions I might have made based on what was happening around me, that was one that I looked back on. I was like, wow, that's amazing. There's the old saying, you can't judge a book by its cover. I'm a firm believer in you can judge a book by its cover because why would they put covers on books? Like if you see fishing on a book, it's probably about fishing. Yeah. The first time I saw you years ago at Harry and Mary's, you look creative. Oh, yeah, I think I was always, I always, it, yeah. I have to be a weirdo. Like I can't present myself. I say a weirdo. Like right now I'm trying oh, to thing. like look a little normal. My kids are on this hairdo thing for me, but um, I've always had to have what I call just a crazy haircut and a crazy way of um, not even crazy, unique. Like I have this um, need to look different. And there was a great thing my mom said to me. When I was young and she did not like it, she was like, I don't know what you're doing with your hair, what you're doing with yourself, what the hell kind of torn up stuff you're wearing. Mm -hmm. But um, even if you didn't dress like that, even if you didn't have a, a, a kooky haircut, people would still know you're a weirdo. <laughs> yeah, well, and uh, I'm happy to look creative. Thank you. That's a compliment. Uh, absolutely. It is. <laughs> absolutely. So let's talk. You're currently and when you say currently, you've been at that for quite a while now, but you're the art art director at Styx. Yeah, I'm one of two art directors at Styx. Um, I have been there 27 years um, and it's amazing. I'm currently there part-time, which is awesome. I get to go in and draw and help out with some ideas and decisions and make stuff look amazing. And it's been 
a, a wild time. Like it's that thing, how fast time goes by. Like I never meant to be there that long. Yeah. And um, when I got there, there was like 10 people working there. And I thought it was so cool. I met Sarah that first day, you know, the floods of 93, like I graduated college in 92. I was at Iowa state and then I was selling hats and making um, painting murals and I heard about sticks and I thought they sold other people's artwork. I didn't know at all what she did, but I went in there after kind of the aftermath. Cause I remember there was still all kinds of mud downtown. And I saw what I met Sarah Grant and saw what she was doing. And about a month later, she hired me. And 27 years later, here we are, there was like 10 people working there. And then it grew into this amazing, um, you know, folk art furniture, place that we sold in galleries all over the country before people even knew we were being made in Des Moines, Iowa. Well, it's, it's got that recognizable, like if you walk into the children's hospital, you see the sticks artwork and you just know right away that sticks. Yep. How would you describe that style and that look? Um, well, I love to consider it just kind of simple, you know, that folk art thing we talk about where it's, um, it's not realism. It's not super fancy. I like that we incorporate words and language and it is that, um, kind of ultimate storytelling. The magical thing about sticks that I see from traveling to trunk shows all over the country and, um, things like the hospital where people get to go to the hospital is that it has this universal quality to it where people can walk into a gallery or walk into the hospital and see it and think, Oh, that, that's talking to me. That's my story of it. If it's the four seasons or if it's doing your best or sing and dance or follow your heart, whatever those um, words and phrases and stories that we weave together with pretty simple, um, not necessarily silly, but kind of folky images people relate to immediately that it's personal to them, but also it's so universal because we're all kind of trying to do these things and live a good life and do our best and feel good and um, enjoy, you know, the sunshine and, and count the stars and follow our hearts, that kind of thing. So that's a really cool element to it. Um, simple, funky lines. I, when I got there, I thought it was really important to add a lot of animals and sassy girls. You know, there was a, not a lot of, um, real animal representation. Sarah is an amazing artist and did a lot of abstract animals. So I put a lot of cats and dogs and birds and kooky things on them. So that's kind of your, your touch yeah, to the yeah, process. Yeah. That blank children's hospital um, installation was the first installation that um, she, it was like the, one of the first huge ones that was she, that we got. And she was like, you got to help me draw this. And I was like, really? I get to draw this stuff. And so we just had a blast. We just knocked it out. And it's kind of like we were talking before the show where it's kind of just going for it, not um, overly thinking it into a place of it not flowing. And we just knew what we were doing and just let it, let it flow. And it was pretty magical. It'd be uh, I, I try to think how many kids and parents and family members that that artwork has touched and yeah. how many people have seen that and stopped and looked at the various, you know, items that you find through there. Yeah. The distraction of um, having to be there all the time or what's really going on there. And that's why there's a lot of words with questions just to kind of take away from um, maybe what's happening in the very moment that's uncomfortable to remind you that there is a space where 
things can be a little bit lighter. And we've heard a lot about that, where the people that are there in the <clears throat> in the part that's called the ambulatory, where they have to be there for treatment on a regular basis and to be able to have something to look at. And I think hospitals try really hard with their, it's kind of corporate art, but when it when you have the warmth of it being handmade and hand-drawn, and even maybe a little mistake in there, then it and that it's local. I think it really that can transfer energetically. Like you can feel that kind of thing, and that's the magic of doing those installations is knowing that you're kind of changing someone's day, or mm -hmm. just a little little bit of brightness in in a what could normally be kind of a cold, stark room. Now you talk about a little bit of brightness. Your your personal art that that you do. I've seen some darkness come through. Talk about that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I like to think I have um, this sort of split personality with my personal work. And there, I'm just coming to terms with realizing that I can have people that like both. I got kind of hung up thinking, oh, there's people that only want to see the paintings and the bright, inspiring, encouraging, kind of sassy um, work that is... I call it bright, flat color and bold black outlines. And then there's the collage pieces that I do that are layers of antique papers and found objects. And sometimes there's bird wings or bones or teeth, kind of um, natural organic elements. And sometimes there's a little death kind of woven into the mix. And I like to think of sometimes these old papers and old photographs that you know, nobody wanted anymore, but that, that somebody wanted at the time, like that the spirit of whoever was working with those papers or whoever saved them for so long is, um, somehow comes through in the collage work. Okay. Well, I, I saw a quote, I can't remember what it was exactly, but it was like an old article and it, it was talking about how you find beauty in things that others might find. What would you say? I think I said disgusting at the time, which <laughs> just, is so funny to think of now, like just right there. Um, because at the time I was, you know, uh, I, I think it's my collage work and my sort of um, mild obsession with death kind of comes from my mother, who was amazing and brilliant and wonderful and troubled, um, wanted to die when I was a kid and she wanted to die often in her life. And it was just kind of a, um, a, a reaction to, to some things that had happened to her and some depression. And, um, but as a kid hearing that it really freaked me out and it scared me. And, um, I think my way of coping with that was like, Oh, okay. You know, after a few years of it, it was like, if you want to die, then, um, and that's okay. Like, I want you to be happy. I want to get to a, a, a conclusion with this. And so I kind of got okay with it. And then I asked if I could dig up our dog that we buried in the backyard. And he, he was a dog that was a beautiful Doberman that she adored. And she said I could. And so it kind of started in this sort of archaeological interest in death and bones and what the treasures are that are left behind. Because also shortly after that, I found a dead crow on a, on a walk in the woods and just the feathers and the beak. And, um, that kind of led to this interest in, um, noticing not everyone wants to know about the dead crow I found in the woods or that I dug up the dog's bones and what that looked like. And that is a unique, 
um, interest for at the time it was a few people, you know, and Mm -hmm. it seemed like, oh, I like these things that people, you know, think are disgusting, picking up roadkill or, um, well, well, you know, what if someone listening to this might go, oh my gosh, she dug up her dog, but what's the difference? And where's the time frame that says this is really gross and morbid to, wow, this is fascinating and you find it in a museum. Yeah. Well, I mean, right, how, right. how do you distinguish between the two? Because it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And, you know, I recognize that dog. It was so cool to, even as a kid in high school, like to see his skull and to see that recognition, like, oh, I know this, you know, it was very um, sacred to me. It wasn't anything to take lightly. I still have that skull and it's amazing. And it is an absolute treasure in my life. And you're right. Like, how does it go from a museum um, being accepted at a museum than to being this, because I, I also didn't want to come at it as um, kind of the um, the freak show in the sense of shocking, you know, because to me, it's really beautiful. It's an interesting, beautiful element to have. And, you know, on the subject, it led all the way to my mom died a couple years ago and we had an incredible experience. I had the privilege of taking care of her the last few years of her life. And um, her death was really unexpected. It was a wild thing how it turned out, but she happened to be in the hospital. And, um, you know, I, I had sort of asked after this incident where I knew she was no longer with us, but they had her on life support. I said, what do you need me to know? I kind of opened up the room for a meditation with her and she just blasted my heart so hard. So amazing. Like this beautiful, rush of pure love. And, um, it is just, it was incredible. And I wrote about it, but I was able to be there for her. And, um, you know, when I took her with my sister to get cremated and we were, we got to be present in the room, we got to push the button and it's kind of being with that person that we love in that whole intense event, rather than just rushing them off for someone else to deal with it. That's their job every day. and. As I was at the crematorium, I asked the wonderful people working there, um, because I've done research on death and funeral practices, I asked if I could have her bones at the end of the cremation, because what happens is they um, take the bones that don't turn to ash and they grind them down. And, and then you get your bag of bones. And they were accommodating. They said, absolutely. We love that you asked. They loved that I knew what I was talking about and that I had an interest in that and could bring honor and respect to that. So there's this kind of, there's a light bit of humor underneath it from because of her experience and my experience with her asking to dig the dog up to her death, asking to keep her bones. And they're in a beautiful crystal bowl now. It's small um, bits of bones, but you know, it's not something everyone is comfortable with, but I feel that it's still a beautiful part of someone I loved very much. And we had such an incredible experience at the end of her life that um, I love that. You know, I don't regret it a bit. Creativity in closure. Have you ever wondered how long you could carry the weight of the world? You were talking about bringing people together to share their experiences. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I had an art show. I'm, I'm putting together a book about two installation art shows that kind of revolve around my family, my mother and her sister 
and my grandmother and how they sort of dealt with or didn't deal with a family tragedy of my mom's little sister that was killed on a Girl Scout outing in 1968. So she was killed the year before I was born. And I've been able to put these art shows together that tell the story of the child and tell the story of a little bit of the aftermath, but also kind of show um, that there's a way to get by, like that we all, all our families have tragedies, all our families have difficulties. And um, there is, I believe, such a thing as generational trauma, you know, that we inherit from our family members that maybe haven't worked through their trauma or tragedies. And in putting these two shows together, um, I in was having a show for people to come to the second one that was called a viewing art on death and reconciliation, because it was important to me to let go of all the participants involved in the death of the child in 1968, because there was a lot of blame that wanted to go to people that didn't do the right thing. And in, in having that show, I invited community to come over and participate by bringing photographs or pictures or papers or remnants that they wanted to include in a community collage or bring something to burn in the fire that maybe they wanted to let go of, that maybe they didn't realize the weight of something in the past um, that happened to their family or family members that they may still be carrying with them and that we can let go of the trauma with, you know, making this art piece or with making this collage piece and make way for healing and acceptance and forgiveness to not be stuck with that, um, the negativity of that, with that, whatever this idea that it's, this thing has happened to me, because that child that was killed in a car crash could have totally been saved. And it was multiple people that day that um, did not do the right thing to, to save her. And I think that's what hurt my grandparents so much. They really wanted someone to blame and they, there was no one to blame. And, and um, it, it just ate at them forever. Like even when I was, um, a kid, they would go to Washington and pester the Kennedys in the seventies to get laws changed about being a, a, a passenger in a car. And, you know, I contacted, um, the gal that was driving the car. Like I say, they were on a Girl Scout outing. They went to the ledges. They left from Monroe school, um, that I live really close to in Des Moines. And, um, on the way back, they left early because of the rain. It was in May, it was on May 30th, 1968. Um, the car got out of control and Susan was kind of hung up on the car, but she was drugged like 125 feet through a ditch. And then the car um, hit a pole and sort of landed on her. So they had to use a tire jack to get the car off her. And then they had her get up and walk to someone else's car to get a ride home with a stranger. Cause the gal driving the car was a nurse and a girl scout leader, but she wanted to rush her own daughter to the hospital. And so she had Susan get a ride home with someone that didn't really even know the details of the accident. And so that was like mistake one, you know, like keep the child on the ground until we can get help. But they had her get up. And then my grandfather rushed her to Blank Children's Hospital and ran into trouble with uh, the secretary or the or the gal working, um, working there and said she'd call the pediatrician to have him come in. And then, you know, they, they knew it was a picnic and it was a Girl Scout outing. And then she informed them that she called the pediatrician and said he didn't really need to come in, that the child was just vomiting because she's had too much picnic. And so Susan essentially died on the floor of the hospital without getting help. She had a cerebral hematoma that um, at the time, the um, 
the medical director of the community, R.C. Wooters was his name. You probably remember yeah. that name. Yeah. He wrote a letter saying she could have been saved, had the right thing been done. And um, it just was a wild, a wild thing that I didn't even know about the whole accident until I was probably 30, 30 years old. Mm-hmm. I knew that this accident had happened and it was something that made my mom sad all her life. Um but I didn't know the details of it. So once I was given, I'd spent years making collage out of um, papers and found objects and old uh, window frames and bits and pieces of other people's lives um, for years, making those stories up. And then I was handed, you know, boxes of my family stuff. Like my grandmother had a probably 300 little photos of Susan on the back of every one she hand wrote um, uh, killed in a traffic accident, killed in a car accident, you know, what different ways of writing killed in car crash, you know, it was this obsessive, um, way of dealing with this because no one, no one could take the blame, but no one really needed to take the blame. It was just done. It just happened, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's wild. So the two art styles, the collage work, the, the painting, I think they can integrate like the, I do have people and friends and clients that appreciate both of them. And, um, part of the space that I'm in now is, um, taking a break from the painting and the collage or the paintings. Cause I have a couple murals coming up and some, um, commission paintings to do so I can work on a book that really puts together those two art shows, the art of family tragedy and how to be amazing anyway, which was the original show about Susan's death where I have great audio of her singing. She sang an Eartha Kitt song at the, at the Iowa state fair in 1967, which is cool. And um, then the second show after my mom died and putting those together into a, um, a book that contains a little bit of my story within it and my family's story within it, but also interesting documents that document her life and um, kind of how everything went down and, collage work, the collage based on inheriting darkness, inheriting family stories, um, what my grandmother's life was like and things that we never talked about. Like I never got to talk to my grandmother about any of that, but it was so much a part of her. And then the painting on that side of the show was about how to live in gratitude, how to be amazing anyway, in the sense of how to take care of yourself, how to have tools to, um, be your best self so you can show up for others. You know, these basic ideas of um, living with gratitude, being empowered and how can you help others and kind of sharing your light rather than um, being stuck in the dark. So I'm putting it all together in a book and um, I'm looking forward to it. Is this therapeutic for you or do you hope that someone else gets a hold of this book when it's finished and get something from it personally? You know, I think it is both. It has been definitely both. It was definitely thera- therapeutic for me because I feel like I've already been through the work and it's taken me a couple of years to feel like anyone cares enough or not even cares enough, but I've had to work on um, talking to a lot of people that would get a lot out of the the book as well. Cause so many people showed up to the, to the art show to participate in that little um, event, that kind of letting go event that that should have been indicative there that, that people appreciate this, this opportunity to gather as community and maybe let go of some things. That was really cool. But I have a tendency to think nobody wants to hear your story anymore. Like the idea was to be done. Like once I got to put my mom's ashes in the vault with her little sister, the idea was to be done with the story 
the collage work, the whole, you know, kind of ceremonial um, ritual of this amazing last art show was supposed to be the end of it. But because it wasn't something that was, I didn't want it documented documented because there's some pretty special pieces in there that aren't out for the public to see, but that are beautiful and interesting photographs. Um, and a part of the show, I do think it could be interesting, if anything, empowering. And also, um, I think most of everything I do is hopefully for others to get something out of it. How do you deal with what you've been dealt? Maybe it was just in the cards. Prairie Majesty Oracle. Ta-da! Explore your sovereign nature. Yeah. Talk about that. That is so cool. So um, that is such a fun story. It's a 48-card Oracle deck. And an Oracle deck is, if, if for people that don't know, it can sound kind of mystical. And it is a little mystical, but it's essentially 48 cards designed in um, four categories. We, My great partner, Kara Simons is her name. She's an inc- incredible writer out of Des Moines. She wrote this deck and I got to illustrate the deck and it's all based on prairie plants and animals and it is a wonderful tool. So this, the idea of the Oracle deck is there's these cards that you can lay out in a variety of ways. You can put three cards out for, you know, where should I put my focus today? What should I keep in mind and where am I going? You know, or it can be one card that you pull to kind of set the direction of the day, because I think as humans, we tend to get in our patterns of, this um, concept of of productivity, like I'm not, I'm nobody unless I'm super productive and super busy. And we have to remember that we're so much more than that and um, kind of shifting our thinking. I love yoga. I love meditation. I love sitting quietly or using these cards to kind of redirect my thinking. And there's a great story in that how I hadn't even met Kara um, and it, I mean, I guess it's a funny story because I had, when, when she contacted me and said, would you be an artist for this deck? I was like, yeah, I'd love to be. And she gave, gave me the tagline that was explore your sovereign nature. And I was like, that's so cool because um, in dreams, I can't read words. Like in dreams, um, there'll be people holding up signs with language and words on it. And I can never make out what it is. And there is, I have a reoccurring dream of in a, like a big art factory or big machine factory. And I don't remember my dreams a lot, but there was a particular dream where I lifted up a post-it note and the only word I could see was sovereign. And so then she came to me and said, explore your sovereign nature. And I was like, wow, that's so cool to, to have this kind of connectiveness here. And she wrote all the cards, you know, there's a question on each card. There's a word on each card that, um, invite you to ask yourself the question, you know, am am I ready to be seen today? Am I, um, there's so many great questions. I brought, I brought Sean a deck so he can play with it and have fun with it. It's awesome. Yeah. And it just, it, you know, like I said, it even if it's something that you, it just looks cool. Yeah. I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah. And wait till you get into it. Like wait till you get into these um, kind of, I like to refer to them as, um, what is it? They're gentle, but direct questions, you know, something to really think about. Mm-hmm. Like earthworm is so awesome in that, you know, a lot of people think of earthworm as like, ugh, 
no, you know, there's squeamish about it, but the word on earthworm is breathe is in, in, he's in the dirt. And the question is, um, oh, I might confuse it with snake. Uh, there's, it's just a great question. I can grab the deck. It's a, it's something about like, um, is my fear greater than it needs to be or something like that? It's just a great question. And the snake is the same way as people feel the same way about snakes sometimes that in, and we can reframe how we think about animals and how we think about ourselves, because I think that it brings this funny way of how we judge ourselves when we first maybe look at the animal that it's referring to. There's vulture in there. There's also incredible flowers, coneflower and the big blue stem and um, beautiful birds. It's, it's awesome. It was really um I'm so proud to be a part of it because sometimes we can get involved in projects and it it can either fizzle out and not go, which was, you know, an easy thing to think about with a grand undertaking as this deck and having it printed and distributed. But we're in 48 states like we've been purchased and in 48 states already and in several countries. So it's so cool that it's taken off so much and people see the benefit of this awesome tool. There's a great community of people that love um love to work with cards and the Oracle deck and the sort of the magic of, of nature. Mm -hmm. You're sitting down to create a piece of art. Mm -hmm. It's just for you. No one's going to see it. Maybe it's for you. You don't care what the outcome is. You don't care what the response is. What's that going to look like? Mm, that might look like, um, Picking up, I have a beautiful stack of old frames and um, playing with an old frame and getting a backing for it and just start layering from this collection of old photographs and bits of fabric. It's collage. It's kind of layering the collage. That's the stuff I like to do on my own. I love, I'm also in love with painting huge. And I've noticed in painting big murals that I love the space between the actual um, image. So this little abstract corners of where things meet. So if it's just for me and which I, I think it's really important as an artist to make that all your work, to remember that the work has to come from you. Cause if you start doing the work only to chase what somebody's asking you to do or to, for someone else you think is going to buy it, then you, then it can, you can lose your lose yourself in that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, occasionally I get jobs where it's like, Oh, this isn't me. This isn't me. And I am really the first to pass them around, pass it along to another artist that is right for it. So, but I think today, if I were to start something that was just for me, it would be some layered kooky, heavy, um, collage piece. I have some ideas of some sculptural pieces I like to do. I would like to do that include um, different elements, almost like a wall of, it's like a moving wall of art. So if I had a wall and my old frames, like a stack of frames. So it's a combination of, of painting a big painting and then putting the frames all around and filling it all in. So it's this almost, um, Rather than it be one piece of art, it's a wall of like a salon piece where it's floor to ceiling with frames and then the painted um, painted background. So there's wallpaper and there's collage all in there. So combining it. 
you consider yourself as having influences from other artists or pieces that you you take and, and bring into life for yourself? I'm certain of it. And there was a time in college where I remember thinking, oh, I should, I don't want to be influenced. I want to just stay pure. I want to stay who I am. So I don't want to look anymore. But I think ultimately for me, what I lean back on is um, this, my mom's albums. You know, when I was a kid, I loved my mom's records. And for some reason, her album art, like opening the albums and sifting through her records were like a number one influence on me and kind of the psychedelic art and in some of those records and comic books, you know, old comic books, the heavy metal comic books that her, she had a friend that would have stacks of them around. And those are influences and definitely Victorian stuff, you know, is an influence, but you know, for artists, I love a particular photographer. I've been reading a lot about her lately. Her name is Sally Mann and she takes kind of life you know, and, and makes these incredible photographs. And, um, she has a beautiful memoir that inspired me a couple years ago to get this book together because it's her family history in a way, but it isn't something that's so far out that I was like, Oh, why would she write that? So it inspired me to be able to put this book together because she's in the book. She's got her life story, her family's life story a little bit. And, um, photographs of documents and pictures and even the hard stuff, you know, she got a lot of grief for you, you know, the photograph of her daughter. I think it's, um, Georgia might be her name or Caroline smoking is, you know, she's holding a candy cigarette, but she's like seven years old. And it's a great photograph that Mm -hmm. once you see it, you would, you would know it. So I love her work. Um, I love asylum artists. You know, I love people that don't mean to be artists that do it. Um, because it, because they have to do it. You know, there's, there's, um, death row artists are one thing that I think are amazing because they would never pick up any sort of art form unless they were on death row. And then they get to transform their minds. It's transcendent when they're making these art pieces. That is incredible to me because we, we, we all have this creativity in us. It's whether you believe it or not, or whether you act on it. And for like the asylum artists, um, And that is a term referencing the time from like 1800s to the 1930s. They were called asylum artists, but there were people that were in mental institutions that behaved better when they had art supplies, you know, uh, and they would have stacks and stacks of incredible artworks. Adolf Wolfie was one of them. Um, And I love that instinctual accidental artist, you know, the artist that doesn't mean to be an artist are a great influence on me because the, the mind is again, not looking for the buyer, you know, it's, it's making it because it has to make it because they want to make it because mm-hmm. it is a language, you know, they might feel like they have to make it because of that language of creativity, of making the thing, the physicality of making the thing, whether it's a painting or a drawing or, you know, I, I love that kind of um, art. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about the asylum artists and how like the behavioral changes for the better when given art supplies. And yet in our society, it seems like when there's budget cuts or things that have to go, it's the arts that are always pulled first. Isn't that crazy? So what is the state of art in say, just, you know, in general, but in the state of Iowa, what, what have you... I think it's amazing. I think it's going really well. I think there's many opportunities and I'll go, I'm a little bit of a, um, I'm not necessarily antisocial. I just, I love to get out in the world. It's like 
and, and show up and speak up and participate, but also I can easily get into my own isolation bubble of making stuff. So, um, when I get out, what I've seen is that they're incredible communities. Like, and what's so cool is that even the far reaching communities are, um, with communicating with each other, like they're inviting, um, artists from Des Moines to come to Dubuque. They're inviting artists from, um, Des Moines or Fort Dodge to participate in their art shows or paint murals here or do design, um, sculptures for bike trails. And at any of these events, I always meet like crowds of people that I didn't even know were in the community making art. So I think it's going really well. There's more gallery owners, um, I feel like than there has been in the past, there's more people um, promoting. So the artists are kind of coming together in these small pods and these small groups to promote each other and to share. Now um, that doesn't mean that everyone has accessible accessibility to like paying jobs or proper paying jobs, but there are a lot of um, um, I think entities that are sort of teaching that. I think the Iowa arts council is great and they've even developed a, um, sort of what's the word they use these kind of cohorts to teach people about the business of art, how to combine businesses and artists to work together and um, get people paid the right way, you know? And I think they're learning about, you know, asking an artist to do a huge mural for them to get um, seen isn't the way to do it anymore, but I think it's a thriving community. What has art and creativity meant for your life? It has meant, um, kind of everything, you know, I feel like it's the way I do everything is, and and you don't notice that you're a creative thinker until you're working with someone who's not necessarily a creative thinker. It doesn't mean they're less than or more than, but if I'm going in someone's house to talk about a mural or an art piece they want, and they, some people are just do not have that part of their brain turned on. And I'm equally as fascinated with their, um, with them as they are with me, you know, so that is a, is a cool thing to be able to work with others, um, in that realm of, um, creativity. So, I mean, making stuff, like I've been making stuff since I was a kid, I would sew little things. And I think it was a little bit of a response to some trauma that was happening, like not to me, but around me. Um, and I really liked being alone and I would sew little animals and I would draw pictures. I sold, um, my first painting was of Betty Boop when I was like seven years old and I kept the check forever. And I was a kid that would draw Snoopy, everybody's little Snoopy character in elementary school. And so it's always stayed with me, you know, art and creativity is just, um, I still have to have my funky hair, my funky shoes, my, my, my funky way of doing things. And it's kind of looking at the big picture, you know, not getting stuck in this perception of how we think things should be, but looking deeper into life and death and what we're doing here. And um, I'm not shocked by it, but it's real cool that I've been able to maintain the, and the older I get, the more I'm like, wow, you know, we, I went to art school with someone that never did art again, you know, that got a job at Wells Fargo or something, and then just did their thing from there. So it's, uh, I feel really fortunate in that and that I've kind of got to make it, um, my life making art. And then there's definitely been phases of not making art. You know, I got sober in 2003. Yeah. 2003. And I thought I ruined my gift. I thought I ruined my, um, creative thinking, my ability to just 
come up with something. If someone says, how do we incorporate this just to have an idea for it? And the truth was that um, it never went anywhere. Like I just needed to realign my myself. And I thought, you know, I come from darkness in my, in my, in my way of viewing myself, I come from dark and I've let light in rather than coming from light and let dark in. And so to come to this conclusion of, um, having to love myself, it felt so not cool. I'm like, that's not cool. Like my art is dark and heavy and, and, and haunting and creepy, but I needed to, um, rewire how I thought about that and getting sober. You know, when, when, when I come to get sober, um, the drinking is a symptom of not knowing how to live. It's kind of like the drinking isn't even the problem. The drinking is not knowing how to be in my skin and how to love myself. And so I had to come to a place of, oh, like I've been given this life. I've been given this body to live in and it's my job to take care of it. It's not my job to wreck it and think bad thoughts about it and be in bad relationships and and think I don't deserve to be here. My job is to be elevated, to rock this thing out, you know, to grow and to love. And um, sobriety had a lot to do with that clarity of um, creativity. And also I didn't lose it. You know, I didn't lose it. I put it aside for a while. I had a lot of shows start that didn't get finished because I couldn't not be wasted. But once I was able to get on the other side of that and get clear and, and, realized that living um, drunk was just so small and repetitive and to live a life of feeling emotion and sharing with others and loving myself so I can love others just kind of blasted out that that creativity because it makes us you know as we you've probably heard it before we're uniquely qualified to help others once we um, take care of ourselves you know and get clear on that so it kind of became this this catalyst for um as I was learning and growing and loving and shining to inspire others to do the same. Thank you for listening to There's a Fly in My Soup. If you'd like to help support this podcast, please share it with others or leave a rating and review. From all of us at Hot Soup Video Kitchen, have a great day and keep craving content. When I was talking to you last week, you said you wanted room temperature water. Mm-hmm. Is it room temperature enough? It is room temperature enough. See, I, li- I don't like to sip. I don't like ice water, but I like to drink plenty of water. Like water is my thing.